If you have your Bibles open there, please do keep them open in front of you. Uh, the passages we'll be looking at, uh, particular verses, will also come up on the screen. Uh, and as we prepare to have a look at this part of God's Word, let's pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your Word. We thank you that in your Word, the Bible, we learn about you, we learn about who we are as your people and how we are to live as people who belong to you. We learn all about your son Jesus and what he has done to make us your people. We pray that you help us to understand what we read today and to help us to be growing as followers of Jesus because of your word. And might we do this to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of our series, uh, looking at the Gospel of Mark, is Meet the King. And um, well, people have looked to their kings for centuries to provide for them. People have looked to their kings for, for freedom, for protection from their enemies. They've looked to their kings for prosperity, for the right to work and earn and, and live in a prosperous nation with plentiful resources. People have looked to kings to govern mercifully and to provide for their needs. But so often, uh, too often, kings have done anything but provide. Uh, too often, earthly kings have sought glory for themselves while showing little concern for their people, uh, building grand palaces while their people starve, taking the best of the land's produce to feed themselves while the people get the scraps, uh, taking the young men to fight in wars and leaving their families to grieve for them when they don't return. Now, this isn't the way that Kings have always behaved. There are many good kings in the history of the world, but there's also a pattern that you can observe throughout history. Uh, and it's been happening for a long time. God even warned the people of Israel about this uh, when they told him that they wanted a king like the other nations. Uh, and in the book of 1 Samuel, this is the reply that God gave the people through the prophet Samuel when they asked for a king. Uh, God says through Samuel, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. People of Israel didn't quite know what they were doing when they asked for a king, and God leaves them in no doubt as to what an earthly king can be like. Earthly kings simply don't always provide in the way that people hope they will. But in today's passage in Mark, we see a king who does provide. The king of God's kingdom, King Jesus, who provides in great abundance for our greatest need. Uh, the passage we're looking at in Mark today has Jesus feeding the hungry, providing for the needy, and not only once but twice, and doing so in simply miraculous circumstances. Uh, chapters 6 to 8 follow 
an interesting pattern. Uh, we're looking at the bulk of this section of Mark from verse 30 of chapter 6 to verse 13 of chapter 8. And as we do so, we're going to see a certain flow of events. Uh, there's what's called a chiastic structure here, uh, which is uh, a bit like the sandwiches we've seen in Mark so far, but on a larger scale. Uh, so if you remember last week, I uh, pointed out that, that you could look at the story of Jairus' daughter and the woman suffering from bleeding as like a, a sandwich-type structure. We started with uh, the first part of Jairus' story, uh, which is... Uh, the bread and the woman suffering from bleeding, the story about her was the meat in the sandwich. Then the, the last part of Jairus' story is the, the, the next piece of bread. It's like a... And, well, if, if, if that was the case with the sandwich, then the account of these two feeding miracles, it's a much larger section, and it was more like a burger. Uh, okay, so with uh, bread, uh, at either end you've got the bread and the, the cheese, tomato, and then the meat... Uh, followed again by tomato, more cheese, and then the second piece of the burger bun on top. It's a noticeable pattern of stories as you read through that it draws attention to the story in the middle, uh, the meat, uh, while also highlighting the, the, the stories that, that lead into and out of the centre. Now this, uh, and the feeding of the 5,000 is the first part uh, of the burger bun. Uh, this is a miracle on a massive scale. Uh, it shows Jesus' ability to provide abundantly for the needs of his people. Uh, then we'll have the instance of Jesus walking on the water and the response of amazement from his disciples, then further healing miracles. Uh, the central piece of this section we're looking at today, the meat, is an interaction with the Pharisees, which highlights the very source and nature of sin. Uh, it's crucial to understanding Jesus' provision for his people. And flowing on from that central interaction with the Pharisees, there's another instance of healing as someone puts their faith in Jesus. Uh, only this time it, it'll take place in Gentile uh, territory. A Gentile woman is the person healed. Then there's another miracle leading to amazement from those who witness it, just as the disciples are amazed at Jesus walking in the water. And the whole section will be finished off with another feeding miracle. Uh, which this time, again, takes place in Gentile territory. Uh, it's quite a big chunk of Mark. It's a long section. And we're not going to look at every verse in detail, but we'll look at key verses and we'll get the, the sweep of the message here, which is that Jesus provides in abundance. Uh, he provides abundantly for our greatest need and he provides for all who come to him. Uh, chapter 6, verse 30, has the disciples returning from their first short-term mission excitedly telling Jesus of all they've seen and done as they went out in pairs. Uh, and we see Jesus taking the disciples to get some much-needed rest. Uh, but as so often happens, <laughs> not getting any rest because the crowds follow them and they set out in their boat to the other side of the lake. But as they arrive, they find a massive crowd waiting in this previously quiet place by the lake. They could forgive Jesus for being a little bit irritated with the people. But instead, as he so often does, Jesus responds with compassion. Chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now, 
The disciples notice that already it's been a long day after Jesus has been teaching, the area is remote, and so as evening falls, the disciples suggest to Jesus, well, it's time to send everyone home or to let them go to the surrounding villages to buy food at least. And here Jesus gives the disciples an impossible challenge. Chapter 6, verse 37, but he answered, you give them something to eat. The disciples rightly recognise what an impossible task this is for them. It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough food. Uh, They look at the five loaves of bread and two fish that they have, and they look at the the crowd of of what we later learn of 5,000 men, and the maths is very simple. No calculator necessary. Can't be done. And Jesus knows this too, of course, but he knows that what's impossible for the disciples is possible for him. He can provide where we simply can't. And so he asks for the bread and fish and proceeds to feed the masses. Follow from verse 41 with me. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus provides in abundance. Uh, The sheer magnitude of the miracle is amazing. When the passage says 5,000 men were fed, you, you must take into account the fact that there would have been women and children there as well, and so there could have been ten or 15,000 people in that crowd. And Jesus fed them with five small loaves and two fish. Not only did he feed them, but well, they all had as much as they wanted. A very different situation than for many people throughout history living under kings who take and take in order to wage war or build great palaces. Jesus is the opposite. He gives and gives, and here... He just provides abundantly. And just to emphasize the magnitude of the miracle, Mark tells us that the disciples collect up all the leftovers and it's an embarrassment of riches. Uh, The food Jesus started with wouldn't fill one basket, but after the meal, the disciples collect 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Uh, 12 is a significant number. Uh, It signifies Jesus' ability to provide for the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Jesus will say in the next chapter that he has come to Israel, uh, that he wants the children of Israel to have all they want to eat, all they need. And clearly he has the ability to provide for them. Uh, Jesus can provide more than enough uh, for those who are physically needy. uh, And as we'll see, he can provide more than enough for the spiritually hungry. Uh, After such an amazing miracle, the disciples Uh, strangely unprepared for what comes next. Jesus sends the disciples on ahead to cross the lake while he stays behind to spend some time alone in prayer. And then when he's ready and while the disciples are halfway across the lake, Jesus goes out to them walking on the lake, as you do. (laughs) Uh, And I suppose you can't blame the disciples for just being uh, amazed and Uh, Well, for thinking he's a ghost, Mark tells us, it must have been a sight and certainly something they haven't seen Jesus do before, as far as Mark has told us anyway. They cry out, terrified, Mark tells us. And straight away, Jesus calls back and reassures them, it's him, chapter 6, verse 50. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. The disciples are amazed at what they see. 
Uh, and having just seen Jesus feed a massive crowd with almost nothing, you'd think, well, maybe they wouldn't be quite so terrified at Jesus walking on the water, but it'll take them a little longer to catch on just who he is and what he can do. And all along, Jesus is showing them who he is. When Jesus says there in verse 50, take courage, it is I, uh, that little phrase, it is I, reads quite literally, I am. Uh, the verb to be is, is right there, I am. <laughs> now there's a statement that these Jewish disciples would readily understand is the name of God. No doubt it'll just add to their understanding and bit by bit we see the disciples learn and grow as they spend more time with Jesus. As Jesus and the disciples reach the other side of the lake, we see Jesus healing more people in need. Again, people running uh, from all around to be near him, even just begging to touch the edge of his cloak and be healed. Maybe word has spread since the woman with chronic bleeding was healed. That's all she had to do. And here people are asking for the same. And again, it's a clear example of Jesus' abundant provision. Uh, it doesn't seem to matter how many people come around. There's more than enough healing power uh, for Jesus to give. Next, as we come to chapter 7, we, we, we get to the meat in the burger. Uh, we have spelled out for us here the, the real reason we need Jesus to provide for us, the hunger we all have that only Jesus can satisfy. Uh, this is a similar situation to situations we've seen already, the Pharisees challenging Jesus over a question of obedience to certain rules. Uh, and on this occasion, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? They ask him. Now the Pharisees don't have in mind public hygiene. They're not worried that the disciples are going to give themselves a tummy bug. They don't even know what tummy bugs are. Uh, this is about being spiritually clean. They're not following the right rules. Uh, ceremonial washing, according to the tradition of the elders, was designed to, yes, avoid eating with unclean hands and therefore avoid defiling the food that goes into their body. Uh, preventing themselves from becoming unclean from some outside influence. Jesus quickly points out, as the Pharisees ask this question, well, that actually this is their rule, not God's rule. The Pharisees are committed to their own rules over God's law, and they're hypocrites to boot because they don't even properly follow God's laws. Uh, have a look at Jesus' response there from verse 8, chapter 7, and uh, we'll read from verse 8. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. That's a pretty biting response, isn't it? <laughs> the Pharisees, uh, we don't have a response from them recorded. Who knows what they said or did or thought. Uh, but Jesus understands the Pharisees only too well, and the example he gives is one of many, he says, that he could give of their hypocrisy. He calls them out for their hypocrisy, going so far as to ignore God's rules 
by following man-made rules while all the while pretending to be the bastions of uh, goodness and holiness and obedience to God. And he highlights the futility. Jesus highlights the futility then of trying to make yourself clean by human rules. There's nothing inherently wrong, of course, with forming traditions and practices. Over time, Christians have always developed ways of practicing our faith that help us to honour God in our lives. We shared the Lord's Supper uh, this morning in a, a particular way, a, a form of the Lord's Supper that's practiced in many churches, uh, done in the, in the way that we do it in order to remind and teach us again of God's sacrificial love for us, uh, to remind us of the the forgiveness of sin by faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with traditions in themselves. But when our traditions and practices become more important than God and the plain teaching of Scripture, when our traditions and rules become the thing that we think saves us, then we've missed the point entirely. Then we're in grave danger of nullifying the Word of God and we'll be of no use to ourselves or anyone else. If you turned up to church only when the Lord's Supper was on because you thought participation in that ceremony could save you, for example, well, then you would be making a terrible mistake. It's futile to try to make ourselves clean before God. The Pharisees have let go of the commands of God and they're holding on instead to human traditions. Jesus turns to the crowd at this point and Uh, See what he says next there from verse 14. Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Back to the question of washing hands before eating. The Pharisees insist on washing a certain way to remain spiritually clean. Well, the truth is no man-made ritual or rule will make you spiritually clean because... The sin's already there. (laughs) Uh, You can't get rid of what's already there by washing your hands before you eat or or by bringing anything in from the outside. It has has nothing to do with how clean you make yourself on the outside. It has nothing to do with avoiding any unclean influence from the outside. No rule or ritual can change the uncleanness within. Uh, A very different solution is required. Uh, See how Jesus elaborates on this for the disciples? From verse 18, are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. When you're talking about being spiritually unclean, you're talking about sin. And Jesus gives an impressive list here, doesn't he? Man, it's not an exhaustive list by any means, but he lists off some big ticket items. It's hard to argue whether you're a Christian or not that these things are wrong that these things are sinful. Anyone can see these attitudes and behaviours are wrong. And Jesus' point is that all this comes from within a person, and we know that's true, don't we? (laughs) We know that our sin comes from within us. 
There's not anything outside of us that makes us sinful. Uh, before even being told, we, we know that's true. We can't prevent sin. We can't uh, prevent uncleanness by cleansing the outside. Sin is there in our hearts. The heart in Jewish thinking, uh, being the very centre and core of your being, your, it's the seat of the will. It's, it's, it represents who you are as a person. And well, every, who every person is, is essentially sinful. Now, that's a very unpopular idea in, West, in the Western world today. We'd much rather believe that people are inherently good, wouldn't we? You hear that all the time. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the things we do wrong, well, we just have to educate people properly or put the right programs in place. or We, we could deal with that because people are basically good. And many parts of the church pander to that kind of thinking today, but actually... Well, that just leads to a watering down of sin. That leads to ignoring the real solution that we all need for the problem that we all have. Sin comes from within, Jesus says, and no man-made rule or ritual can help us. We need another solution entirely. It's a pretty radical idea for many people today, and it represented a, a, a revolution in the way most Jews thought at the time of sin, of what they thought uh, of, of how to be clean before God. Uh, of course, the Jews had plenty of laws about cleanliness, laws which God had given them. But those laws were for showing God's people how, uh, were not for showing God's people how to get rid of sin. Uh, Many Jews had come to think that was exactly what those laws were for. But no, uh, they were for showing that they were set apart as God's people. They were for showing them how far below a perfect and holy God they were and how they could never be truly clean before him apart from his saving work in their lives. As Jesus points out here, the Pharisees at the time had created a system of man-made cleansing, merely human traditions and rules, and so their worship of God is in vain. Jesus says, as he quotes there from Isaiah 29, they uphold traditions that have them disobeying God's commands. They honour God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. What an indictment. That's an indictment that uh, we need to pay attention to today. Uh, we don't want to fall into the same behaviour. People do love their traditions, and many traditions are uh, very good and helpful. Uh, people love their systems of rules, and as well-intentioned as our rules and traditions might often be, the, the key is to make sure that these traditions and rules, whatever we put in place, that they aid our, our obedience to God, that they uh, demonstrate to God's goodness to us, not rather than trap us in sort of this self-serving human behaviour. Uh, because we can make the same mistake. We should never put tradition above the word of God and we need to work hard not to fall into the trap uh, that our rules and traditions somehow contribute to our cleanliness before God. Nothing we do on the outside can make us clean from the sin on the inside. The sin that makes us unclean before God, it comes from within our very being and the hunger, the need to be cleansed from sin. That's a hunger that only Jesus can satisfy. What Jesus ultimately provides is not simply food. We see these two amazing feeding miracles. Uh, but what Jesus provides is not simply food, 
but forgiveness. As we continue in Mark's gospel, this will become clearer and clearer as we see the Messiah, King Jesus, give from the abundance of his goodness and perfection and love to provide abundantly for the greatest need of all people by dying on the cross to pay the penalty for sin and by rising to life again to provide the proof of his victory over death and give his people the sure hope that death will not be the last word for them as their sin is forgiven through faith in him. This is the meat in the burger here, this series of stories. It's the centre of Mark's chiastic structure, if you want to call it that. It's just a way of organising it in our our heads uh, that emphasises our great need and emphasises Jesus' great provision. And perhaps just as mind-blowing at the time is the news that this hunger, this need, will be satisfied for all who come to Jesus. All people from every nation, not just the nation of Israel. One thing the Jews were constantly afraid of was being made unclean. And one of the worst things you could do uh, to become unclean was to associate with Gentiles. Uh, But Jesus shows that associating, associating with Gentiles can't make you unclean. In fact, they'll benefit from his abundant provision for sin too. Uh, We may sometimes think as Christians today that we ought to be really quite afraid of outside influences, keep ourselves separate from from people or places or things that will harm our faith or contaminate us in some way. The good news is that nothing outside of you can make you unclean. That uncleanness is already there. (laughs) Don't kid yourself. Uh, And if Jesus has made you clean, you are clean indeed. (laughs) Nothing from the outside can put that sin back in you if Jesus has dealt with it. So you're free to associate with those who don't know Jesus. You're free to associate with those who think might be quite sinful and unclean (laughs) in your estimation. Uh, You should do it wisely, but do it enthusiastically because you've got nothing to fear. They can't make you unclean, but the gospel you share with them can make, you, can make them clean. Uh, we've seen Jesus go to the Gentiles several times already in Mark. Uh, and while it's not his primary mission at this time, we've seen hints already that well, the good news he brings will be for all the nations. The work Jesus will do to save from sin, his abundant provision for our greatest need is for all who come to him. Uh, Jesus and his disciples go into Gentile territory, the vicinity of Tyre, Mark tells us, where they meet a Syrophoenician woman, a woman of Greek descent. Uh, This Gentile woman shows great faith in Jesus and begs him uh, for help. Her daughter is demon-possessed. Will Jesus heal her? And Jesus' response, it seems callous at first. At first he tells her that his benefits are for Israel, first and foremost. Verse 27, First let the children eat all they want, he told her, For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Wow. Jesus' reply seems quite quite rude at first, doesn't it? Uh, It's not as rude as it first sounds. When he refers to the dogs there, he's not using the term in quite the derogative sense that some Jews at the time used when referring to Gentiles as dogs. No, he's using a phrase that refers more, uh, say, to the, the household pet, not not the mangy stray in the street. And of course it's right to feed the children first before feeding the pet dog from the the children's plate. Jesus makes that point. This is the primary reason uh, he has come. 
But the woman has insight, more insight than many, than many of the Jews have been showing. And she says this to Jesus in reply, verses 28 and 29. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. What a reply from the woman. <laughs> the crumbs that fall from the table. I think the, that reference to the, the crumbs uh, are meant to, to make us think of the baskets of leftover food that we saw previously. Jesus provides abundantly and well, there is enough for all. And Jesus acknowledges the woman's wise reply. He heals her daughter. This story, it shows us where the mission of Jesus uh, is heading uh, to all people, to all nations. And we've seen that with Jesus' interaction with Gentiles already. Uh, the next story of healing highlights this further as Jesus heals a man uh, who is deaf, has a severe speech impediment, again in Gentile territory, the Decapolis. The people who see it are amazed, just as the disciples were amazed at seeing Jesus walk on water. And finally, we come to the other end of the chiasm, uh, the top, top of the burger bun, so to speak, at the start uh, here of chapter 8. Uh, the second feeding miracle takes place, and it's so similar to the first, uh, but with a very important difference. Well, I mean, Jesus has compassion on the people, as he did in the first miracle. The disciples are bewildered about how to feed them all, as in the first miracle. Uh, they only have a small amount of food and a huge crowd to feed, as in the first miracle. And like in the first miracle, Jesus feeds the crowd with abundance. There's an important difference. The people Jesus feeds are Gentiles. Jesus hasn't yet returned uh, from Gentile territory as all of this happens. And so we finish where we started, but now Jesus' abundant provision has extended even to the Gentiles. Not merely crumbs from the table even in this example. Uh, there are seven baskets of leftovers this time. Again, emphasising the abundant provision by Jesus. And this we see a, a hint of the abundant provision God has promised even as long ago as his prophet Isaiah, centuries before, a few verses uh, from the passage that we read at the start of the service here, Isaiah 25 and verses 6 to 8, follow along there again. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. See, God has promised to provide a great banquet for all peoples, all nations. He's promised to deal with that shroud of death that covers us all. He's giving this provision for our greatest need and Jesus is showing us that he is the king who has come to provide it. So quickly follow the pro progression through these three chapters again. We have two amazing feeding miracles, one where Jesus provides for a, a great a Jewish crowd, the other where Jesus provides for a, a great gen a Gentile crowd and the stories work their way into the center where we have the clear teaching of Jesus on the problem of sin the uncleanness before God that comes from every person's heart, the, the hunger we all need God to satisfy for us. 
And Jesus provides in abundance. He will provide abundantly for our greatest need, which is sin. And he provides for all who come to him, Jew and Gentile, people from all nations. I'm pretty grateful uh, for that as a Gentile. I don't know about you. Um, This is a promise we need to hold on to tightly. When we look at the sin in our lives and we can't help the fact that sin flows from our hearts as humans, uh, when we look at that that sin, we we should be like the disciples uh, before the crowds of hungry people. There's no way we can meet this need for ourselves, let alone for anyone else. There's no way we can make ourselves clean by any effort on our part, by any rule or tradition or practice. Sin is an overwhelming need, a desperate hunger. Nothing we can do uh, can deal with sin and make us clean, but, but Jesus can. Jesus provides abundantly for our greatest need. We need to make sure we're following him as king, following his path to cleanliness and not some path that we've designed by our own cleverness. Uh, We need to be putting our faith in him, worshipping the Messiah, King Jesus, who came to provide for all who come to him in faith. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Uh, Let's pray. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the God who provides. We praise you for your provision of all that we need, for your provision for our greatest need by sending your son Jesus to give his life, to pay the penalty for sin, to conquer death so that through faith in him we could be forgiven. Our sin could be dealt with, we could be brought near to you, come to you as your children again and look forward to that sure hope of eternal life with you. We simply praise you for this great and glorious provision on our behalf, Lord. Help us to remember that it is you who provides, that it is not uh, ourselves who provide uh, anything uh, of our own efforts. Help us to remember that it is your power, your uh, provision that we rely on. Help us to live in light of this. Help us to share uh, this good news with those who have not yet accepted what you offer. And help us to live with the joy that comes from knowing uh, that you have provided all we need. We ask this, Lord, uh, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.